This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 21st, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The U.S. has spent tens of trillions of dollars fighting poverty with little impact on the overall rate. Civil society may hold the key to solving even this seemingly intractable social problem. Joe Kwong is Director of Economic Opportunity Programs at the Philanthropy Roundtable. We discussed how private sector philanthropy can help people get out of poverty and into the middle class. We're talking about a range of different kinds of individuals from ex-offenders to at-risk youth, single moms, people struggling with addiction, mental illness. So there's a wide range. But basically, if it's someone who's chronically unemployed, it really is a lack of work. They haven't been working. They don't know how to work. And you hate to make this sound just too soft, but it's the whole range of soft skills. There really are legions of people who have no idea what it means to wake up to an alarm clock, set a clock, get to work, get to work prepared, and be ready to do the job that they need to do. And it seems hard to believe, but that's what the majority of these nonprofits that are helping people be, achieve life transformations are doing. It's an attitude adjustment that says you need to work. You, so, want, you want to get out of poverty? You need to work. What clears away those what, – what can we do to clear away those obstacles? Because as you uh, point out in, uh, in this, this book here, uh, a job is the best – Solution to poverty. Right. <laughs> right. So what, what can people of civil society do that has nothing to do with government to clear away the obstacles to uh, allowing people the opportunity to work if they want to? Right. So let's step back for a second. Why are we even talking about work, right? And um, for the most important thing, right now, poverty, economic mobility, income inequality, these are huge topics. And I think work is really the the piece that we're not talking about so much when we, we get at these. From a perspective of the p- political arena, we're talking about raising minimum wage. We're talking about expanding the level of unemployment benefits and whatnot. But the, it really comes down to work. And so the more people we can get to work, the more we can deal with the poverty issue. So what are what are effective strategies? They're pretty simple, actually, but they're really heavy, long slogs. They're taking people who, as you might say, are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're people who have embraced the idea that life as they've known it really isn't working out for them. And they have a life ahead of them, and they've decided they don't want to do that anymore. So that opens them up to being ready to make life transformations. And so essentially, they come into organizations, as as I've spent my past couple of years documenting, organizations that are willing to help people make these life transformations. And it's about as a first step, accepting people for having worth and that they can actually do something. Because if you think about the alternative, the public approach, there isn't this perception that you can do something. We've created a mailbox economy where you, you, based on however you fit in the boxes, then you qualify for this benefit, you qualify for that benefit. But very little is expected of you. You come into one of these programs and there's a very clear perception that you are a person who can do something and we are going to help you get into that position where you can actually do it. And we believe you can. And here are the expectations. And so on the face of it, that's already bizarre. A lot of these folks have never been in a situation where there's an expectation of them where they have choice. And so a bunch of programs that that really just emulate the kinds of the kinds of skills that you need to be successful in work 
and education, and essentially what we call it, training them to the middle-class rules of existence and success. So they might be, let me give a specific example. One program starts, and this is very typical, a five-day job program, and they're told it's nine to five, Monday through Friday, to be in this, if you get in, you have to show up on time. Well, the person who runs this one program, Steve Swain, Step Up Ministry, North Carolina, he can tell you he's going to have 200 people that apply for this job, 100 are going to be accepted, 50 are going to show up on time that first day, 40 are going to be on, on time the second day, 29 are going to make it. And so right there, all they have to do is show up on time. That's tough. And that's a big slogan for living. Half, half a life is showing up on time. And, and it makes sense because it's such a basic thing. If you think about your work, my work, something comes up. We call in. We say we're not going to be on time. But for most of these people who are living on the edge and trying to get a first job, they don't have that kind of luxury. They might be on the assembly line. They might be – I mean, they're a widget, unfortunately, in that initial kind of entry-level work. They don't have that luxury, so they have to show up on time. And um, it, it seems incredibly basic, and it's hard, and good programs like this one I'm referencing – the 29 are going to make it, but you think about how many they started out with. All those others are welcome to come back, but they're going to start from day one again, and they're going to go through that, and they're going to have the same kinds of numbers. It's pretty remarkable. Um, but the programs will, will imitate life in uh, so many other different ways. And let me give you an example, another one. A lot of low-income people just don't plan ahead. They're so used to being in survival mode versus what we would probably say achievement mode for, for us, our families, our kids. So survival mode doesn't really lend itself to planning ahead. You're really acting in the moment. So another, another example of how these programs work is they will operate in a different place every day and tell somebody at 5 o'clock the night before where the program is the next day because that means you've got to figure out which bus route, which, what direction to drive things that are not part at that time of the muscle memory. So a lot of the work stuff is just what kind of skills and behaviors do we want to get you thinking about because you just haven't had to because of the situation that we've set up. It seems like a whole lot of this uh, when you talk about the, the soft skill obstacles to uh, people being employed and staying employed are really about orienting the brain toward a particular activity that, for whatever reason, these folks have not been oriented toward, perhaps in a very long time. Absolutely. And to use the, an example, think about the third-generation welfare kid. The kid's never seen a parent get up, go to work, rise to an alarm clock, put on their work clothes if they need tools to work, have the tools ready and take all those tools to work. It's just not part of their normal. And so you're you're introducing that as part of what you do and part of what gives purpose to your life. It's part of what organizes your life. I mean, as, as much as we'd probably hate to think this is true, but work organizes our life. It dictates, you know, when we get up, kind of when we eat, when we do what, when we have fun. And it, it puts an order into our lives. And um, I guess that's why so many people retire and are trying to find themselves unless they've substituted with something very passionate, then, then they're, they're kind of floating out there. But you're exactly right. It's rewiring the brain to say, I, I want to have freedom and control over my life. I want to have the ability to choose where I want to live, what I want to do, where I want to send my kids to school, 
work helps provide those things. So for people who want to support these kinds of efforts, you talked about a 200-person application pool, Mm -hmm. 100 accepted, and by the end you have 29 people who have mastered this basic skill. What's step two for, for those folks? Sure. So the way I look at this continuum, if you're talking about the seriously, chronically unemployed, the absolute first step is helping them become employable. And that gets into all the soft skill stuff because you got a guy with attitude. People don't want to hire them, right? So you work on the soft skills. We get that down and you get a job. The job is probably going to be a Walmart-type job, a McDonald's-type job, the entry-level minimum wage-type job. And as exciting as that is, if you haven't been working, when human nature kicks in after a couple months, that's not going to be very exciting. So from the get-go, part of what you're saying as part of this life transformation is get a job, keep that job for a year, but stick with us because ultimately what we want for you is a solid middle-class existence, economic security, a job that you're going to enjoy. And so then the second phase because you've given that hope, and that hope is important, that's something they didn't have before, and a vision and a plan. Then after that, you start getting into the world of of career mobility. And there, that's when a lot of these groups are very sophisticated in terms of certifications, credentialing, partnering with community colleges to find those kinds of jobs. And you know about them. They're the EMS guys, the phlebotomy guys, the, the welders, um, advanced manufacturing. There's a whole world of middle skills jobs that are, are open to people with um, either a high school degree or some sort of post-secondary training. So we try to connect them into this continuum with an ideal world being a minimum wage job being the first thing you have, but then you move into something that you're interested in, you're passionate about, you have career mobility, and you can envision and achieve a life where you can support yourself comfortably. For people who are successful at one, becoming employable, then getting employed, and then moving up in terms of uh, wages and skills and having that middle-class existence, how does their attitude change over that time period? Well, it's, it's very exciting to see, and I think that's the, the reason people stay in this work. There are many studies that talk about the psyche and how if you're coming at this from a middle-class existence, you you focus on the paycheck. But um, as an example, Carla Javits, who runs REDF, a program in California that helps support organizations that run social enterprises for the specific purpose of hiring people that are generally unhireable um, as they're starting their, their transformation. She says even talking about the most incredibly poor people the paycheck is not the thing that motivates them, and it's not the thing that they get excited about, as I mentioned earlier. Um, people really do talk about that that sense, that needing, that sense of worth, responsibility, that sense of respect, and that ability to take care of themselves. And so it changes the way they look at themselves and what's possible. And the reason why I'm interested in it, of course, as a freedom-loving person, is it changes their perception about everything else that depends on entitlements. So once somebody basically says, man, this was a heavy slog, but I did it, they have a lot less tolerance for those who've decided that they're going to live in the mailbox economy. And, um, and that's where we get some of the best advocates for 
welfare reform, people who get it, that it was very corrosive, very destructive when they had the ability to, to be less in charge of their own, their own agency, so to speak. There's a bit of a trope, I'll call it a libertarian trope, which is uh, sort of some hand-waving and then, well, once we get rid of all these welfare programs, the civil society will step in and help the truly needy get from here to there. And that's always seemed very unsatisfactory in terms of an answer. But what you're talking about here is something that uh, is an effort that is – Gets to the heart of that, that argument. Exactly. That's a very, very common thing. You know, the, the welfare programs are crowding out private investment and private interests and it enables people to just move over and say, we're taking care of the poor. And um, it rings hollow unless you can really talk about what's going on, what the private sector would do. So – I mean, in my vision, when we talk about private civil society, I really want to think about a world where we acknowledge that any one of us could fall into bad times. And I'd like to think that I, would, I live in a society where should that happen to me, that you're there to help me and vice versa. And that's not what we have right now, right? We have a one-way system where faceless bureaucracy is providing the entitlements. So, the, so what I've done over the past couple of years is really catalog and try to find who's doing effective work and how's it working. And I'm finding that there are organizations that are helping every imaginable population with the most creative strategies about um, how to solve some of the problems. Um, let, let me give you a, a fun example of one that's just come on my radar, a group that's already doing some, some great work. And I, I at this point, hold the name because it's a new program, but um, they're looking at a bail fund, recognizing that there are a lot of kids that get in trouble with the law. They can't afford the 250 to $500 bail. And so this bail fund will pay that bail, but then that kid owes the organization that money. And then that's when they can say, you've got to be in this work program. You've got to pay off that loan. And it gives them a chance to inject all these soft skills into the kids and essentially give them hopefully a second chance. It might be a third, fourth, fifth, or sixth chance for some of these kids. But there's just all these different ways people are getting very creative in how they help people. Another group, Fresh Lifelines for Youth, was run out of California by um, a lawyer who got an internship helping in the criminal justice system, with again, with juveniles. And... Um, Judges can assign kids to her program as an alternative to being tossed in jail for a while. And it's essentially a leadership training where they learn about the legal system, which doesn't sound very interesting to you and me maybe as a kid. You know, who, who wants to think about some really criminal juvenile? Who, why do they care about the, the juvenile system and the, the legal system? But what happens is the kids end up shifting this perception about themselves where they're victims because they got caught, and now they see that they're actually a real victim and they were the perpetrator, and they start to see how things work. And a tremendous number of her graduates either go on to become law enforcement or lawyers. Not sure that um, what the percentages actually are, but, but they, it enables them to develop empathy, understanding, broader context about how the world works, and, and it instills leadership in, in kids that you otherwise are often viewed as throwaways, lock, up, lock them up and toss the key because they're just the worst of the worst. But 
they're just kids. And that's the thing that, that she stresses is when you're with these kids, once you get over the initial um, annoyance factor because they don't necessarily want to be there at first, in the end, they're just kids. And, and she has incredible success with 90% of them as an easy lift, 10% as a much heavier lift. So I think this is a really important area for people that are interested in supportive of the free society. It's an area where we have largely ignored in terms of the ability to, to make a case about why people should care about the poor and why and how we should go about and do that. We've tended to make the argument, for example, the rising tide lifts all boats. And um, I think that that's as insufficient as if the government just got out of the way, the private sector would fill in. These are just half arguments, and we need to put the meat on the bones to show that the rising tide's not going to lift the boat of the people, the person who's actually outside of the free enterprise economy. Again, the third generation welfare kid or whatever, they're not in the economy. And so changing and, and nibbling at the even the minimum wage isn't going to change that. But if we open up these opportunities and and really bring them in, we have a chance to bring people into the free enterprise economy, turn them from liabilities, turn them into taxpayers, turn them into advocates for the free enterprise economy. And I think it's an important argument to make that really puts meat on the bones and shows that the freedom argument works, and it works whether you're rich or poor, because from a poor perspective, you want to have the choices in how to live your lives. And unless you're working, you can't do that. And in the end, the funny thing is we've talked a lot in this current political climate about income inequality and economic mobility. But in reality, what we've done through our entitlement programs is we've put a cap on what people can achieve. We've put a cap on what they can earn in order to qualify. We've put a cap on what they can save in order to qualify for this. Those caps are just the opposite of what we think of as America, right? Immigrants have come from all over because of the opportunities that we have here to be whatever you can be. So in a funny way, our quest to deal with income inequality has really put a damper on economic mobility. So I would say this area is absolutely ripe for us to continue to look at, find those ideas, models, and strategies that are helping people work, become employable, find jobs, keep those jobs, and add value to society through the free enterprise economy. Joe Kwong is Director of Economic Opportunity Programs at the Philanthropy Roundtable. You can listen to this and other podcasts on your iOS device using the new Cato Audio app. Download it at the Apple App Store or learn more at Cato.org.